as Jesus heads from uh, Palm Sunday, you'll find Bibles at the back there if you'd like one, um, through to Easter Day. And so what we're doing is we're taking the opportunity to stand back a little bit from um, what happens in Holy Week, where between, from sort of Palm Sunday through the week and on to Easter Sunday, most of what we do as a church revolves around all-age services and celebrations together. Uh, and in the midst of all of that, which is wonderful, it's sometimes hard to, to step back a little bit and to think a bit more deeply about what Jesus um, did and what he taught and what he said. And some of the things that, that you find in the midst of, if you like, the big events of Palm Sunday and the Last Supper and so on gets lost. So what we've done is we've taken the last few chapters of Luke's Gospel and we're having a look together at um, Luke 19 onwards and we're just trying not to miss any of the stuff that Luke puts in there. Uh, you'll find Luke 19 on page 1054. And uh, it's an odd little set of passages here from verse 45, literally the last little bit of page 1054, going through to the bottom right-hand corner of the next page. And over this um, chunk, it's not what you expect to be happening. Even if you've read the Gospels loads of times, even if you've celebrated Easter in church over many, many, many years... This isn't necessarily what you expect to find happening uh, in the midst of of it all. What you find is Jesus um, causing trouble uh, and getting cross, uh, teaching, uh, being, um, uh, ending up in sort of uh, wars of words with people who are trying to trip him up and trying to make him uh, look bad, or at least, uh, at worst, trying to get him into such trouble with the authorities that uh, they can find a reason to arrest him and to put him to death. Uh, There's all this jostling for position. And Luke doesn't put it here simply because um, uh, it sort of just fits. He puts it here because he wants us to understand that it is exactly this teaching and these stories and these events that help us to understand why Jesus died. It's very easy um, coming at it from a, a faith perspective to come at Easter. And if somebody says to you, why did Jesus die, to say... He died to save me from my sin, or he died to rescue us, or to mean that we could have a relationship with God, or however you want to phrase it. Actually, Luke would say to us, well, one of the answers we have to give to why Jesus died was he died over the question of authority. Fundamentally, Jesus was crucified because he dared to say that he had a higher authority, that he was the higher authority against the authorities of his day. That's why he died. But it also gives meaning to his death and to what he did, what he achieved. So what I'd love to do is to read to you um, this big, long passage um, from verse 45 of chapter 19 through to verse um, 26 of chapter 20. And I'd love you to notice a couple of things. One is the bookends. Um, Luke does this a lot. You'll remember me saying, um, you might not remember me saying, but last time I said that there was a big, long set of chapters, Luke 13 to Luke 19, where he puts bookends in. Um, Jesus saying virtually the same thing at the beginning and end. It's like Luke's giving, you know, signposts to say, right, read this bit together. Well, this next bit has bookends at either end. And the bookends are to do with Jesus challenging the two major authorities of the day. At the beginning, he challenges the religious authorities in the midst of the temple, which was the symbol of their authority. And at the end, it has him, if you like, being set up to be in a place where he can't do anything but challenge the political authorities of the day. And this was no democratically elected government, whatever we might 
think of the flavour of the government of the day, this was an occupying dictatorship, the Roman government. And in between those bookends, we find Jesus teaching about what sort of authority he had come with. And the challenge he's going to put to us today, I think, is to do with where we are willing to seek authority over our lives. And if we're willing to allow God to have the final say in every part of our lives, or not. So let me read Luke chapter 19, beginning to read at verse 45. Then Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day, he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. One day, as he was teaching, the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you were doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, well, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves, and they said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, well, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, "Uh, we don't know where it's from. Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you uh, what authority I am doing these things. Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, They talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders have rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach that is right 
and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity, and he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. And so he said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. As you walk your way through these verses, what you see is this wonderful backwards and forwards tussle between Jesus and the institutions of authority in his society. And the, the, the sort of context in which he's doing it at all is really not so far away from the context in which we find ourselves and our and others' attitudes to the institutions of authority. For uh, the ancient Israel, um, much like us, there had been some monoliths, some almost impregnable forces that they looked up to and that they respected and that had within themselves a sort of built-in authority. But those had begun to crumble. The, uh, the religious uh, leaders had had a, a from-God, it seemed, direct authority, and they used that authority over many centuries, uh, according to Jesus and according to Paul as he looked back, simply to pile up Law after law after law after law. Jesus said it was like piling great sort of sacks full of rocks on people's backs. And their authority began to be um, lessened as people saw through their hypocrisy of those who were willing to tell other people what to do, but were willing as well to be collaborators with the, um, the incoming Roman army, who were willing to pocket the money that went into the temple, who said one thing but did another. So it was too with political authority. Rome had marched in and had trampled over the promised land, had um, replaced the Jewish king with a puppet king. And yet um, the emperor claimed to be God himself, or at least some incarnation of God or God's son. So these two great institutions of authority had begun to crumble in people's minds. And yet they still wanted to find a source of authority, a source of of solid foundation on which to stand. The fact is, we all need, uh, whatever our worldview, whatever our attitudes to institutions or to faith or religion, everyone needs that sense of uh, moorings, that sense of um, compass bearing, that which gives us a sense of right and of wrong, of value, of purpose. And the difficulty is to ask the question, well, where do I look? It's become a cliche to say that our generation and generations recently gone past have become cynical about authority, have become questioning of authority. But certainly it's true if you turn the clock back 100 years. It seems that people were much more ready to take for granted and take at face value and to uh, take as authoritative um, the commands from religious authorities, uh, the, the way politics was run. Uh, maybe the forces of law and order. And for better or for worse, things have changed. But we no less look for a source of authority. How am I going to know what the right way to spend my money is? How am I to know whether my life is 
making a difference? How am I to judge my relationships, my ability to forgive, my uh, use of my time, my parenting? We look for some sort of external source that says I'm doing okay. How am I to know? For Jesus, he walked into an incredibly um, uh, emotionally charged situation of a people feeling under the boot from Rome, of a people feeling let down by the religious authorities, of a people longing that God would, would do something violent and once and for all and sort everything out and put things back to the good old days, which had never quite existed, as the good old days never do. And yet, they longed for God to just sort it all out. And Jesus walks into the middle of this, and he directly challenges first the religious authorities right in their backyard, and then the Roman authorities. He challenges the religious authorities simply by walking into the temple and and putting the boot in where it really hurt, in the pocket. He he turned over the tables, the other gospel writers tell us, um, of the money changes. Uh, The way it worked back in those days was that if you wanted to go and um, do a sacrifice in the temple, if you wanted to give money to the temple, as was your religious obligation to do, uh, you had to go and change from the denarius that was seen as being uh, tainted by the Romans, and you had to change it into temple money. Well, all well and good, except for the fact that, of course, money changers um, then had the opportunity to pocket a handsome fee. And the fees went up and up, and the reputation of the money changers went down and down. And so you had this place that was meant to be prayer, a gift from God to his people, that was meant to say to them, here is a space in which you can worship. Here is a space that reminds you that God is here and that he loves you, that had been turned into a profiteering marketplace where people were fleeced of their money. And Jesus is cross. The whole thing of Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, just doesn't fly in the face of the Gospels. Here is Jesus burning with righteous indignation. In fact, one of the Gospel writers says he, he, he finds some rope and, and uses it as a makeshift whip to get people to run. He turns over the tables he, he, uh, you can, the doves that were being sold for sacrifice would have been uh, uh, you know, flying away, that the money would have been on the ground. There would have been complete chaos. This was not Jesus giving a polite sermon. This was Jesus burning with righteous indignation that a glorious, beautiful gift of God had been turned by those in power, by those with authority, into a money-making scheme. And and if nothing had happened before that would have set him on a collision course with the Jewish authorities, this alone would have been enough. And that's why you find at the other bookend, if you like, of this passage, them deciding, well, we probably don't have the authority to put him to death. It wouldn't be good enough for simply to organise a mob. It's just not going to happen. The people are mostly on his side. We need the help of the Roman authorities. And so they try and trick Jesus. They get him in a place where there's a crowd... And they ask him the question guaranteed uh, to get tempers boiling. Should you pay taxes to Caesar? Now, to, to put it in context, the, the level of the, the strength of antipathy would be uh, in, in Nazi-occupied Europe to go into a village and, and both in front of a a, a local um, Nazi commandant and in front of some villagers to ask him the question, should you pay taxes to the occupying force? That, that's the level of, of, of the strength of feeling that would have been felt. And Jesus is, as ever, 
brilliant. Because rather than simply saying yes or no, he manages not to say no, and yet at the same time makes it very clear that he believes there is a higher authority than even Caesar. Because what he does is he says, well, show me a denarius. You notice he doesn't say, hand me a denarius. Because there would have been some in the crowd that believed even touching Jewish Roman money would have um, somehow made you unclean. So he says, show me a denarius. Whose head is on it? Caesar's, of course. And then this line that's become one of those phrases of the English language, uh, we you know, render to Caesar's that which is Caesar's. He says, well... Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Dot, dot, dot. In other words, you decide for yourself what actually belongs to Caesar rightfully. But don't you dare give him what belongs to God's. These two bookends show Jesus completely unafraid of standing up to the two great authorities of his day. And the question everybody had for him, and the question you and I should ask of him is, why? Why would he believe that he had the authority to speak against these others? And what authority does he have over my life and over yours? That's the question that they put to him in chapter 20, in verse 2. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. They said, who gave you this authority? Now, his immediate answer is once again, rather brilliantly to duck the question. Uh, he, he knows, and he, Jesus does this five or six times in the Gospels. He plays on their fear. He plays on their weakness. He uses the fact that these people who think quite a lot of themselves are actually terrified of the crowd. And they know they're not very popular. And they know that John the Baptist had become a martyr in people's minds. And so he says to them, okay, well, first, you tell me whose authority John the Baptist had. And they go, well, again, if we say God's, then... Actually, we've got to then say that Jesus is God's authority. If we say his own authority or no authority, this crowd are going to stone us. So he refuses just to give them a straight answer because they don't want to hear what he's got to say. But what he then goes on to do, which is what he does again and again, is tell a parable. And what parables do is they tell the truth in such a way that you only get it if you want to get it. You get it if you're already a little bit on the way in side the story you get enough to know that maybe you're being needled as they were about to find out but it's not so clear that it's simply as a slam dunk well here's the prosecutor I'm going to give them you know, uh, something to nail me with and the parable uh, is a simple one the parable speaks of a landowner who goes away for a long time having rented out his land to some tenants and it seems that the tenants are growing vineyards, and the vineyards pay their rent by way of some grapes or some fruit from the vineyard. And uh, whilst he's away, the landowner sends on three separate occasions a servant to collect the rent, that which is rightfully his, that which he has the authority to ask. And they beat them up, they wound them, they send them away packing with nothing. What they say is, this is mine... I don't recognize your authority to ask me for it. I've been reading this and wondering what it is in my life that I look at and say, God, this is mine, and I don't recognize your authority to ask me for it. And then God 
pictured in this landowner, says, well, then I will send my son. And Jesus says that he sends his son, who is clearly the firstborn son, and the way that culture worked, he was therefore the heir. And therefore, in the way that culture worked, he spoke with a completely different type of authority than anybody who'd come before. If you sent a servant, they spoke, yes, on the master's behalf, but they were still only a servant. They still only represented the master. However, if you were the firstborn son and the heir of that vineyard, your authority within that culture was absolutely one and the same and equal with the owner. That's how it worked. It was the equivalent of the master himself turning up. And he walks in. And it's not simply that they say, no, shan't, beat him up and send him on the way. They kill him. See, Jesus was crucified at a human level, if you like, because the the religious and the political authorities of the day recognized a claim to authority that was unlike anything that had come before. And they recognized that they needed to put a stop to it. He was challenging them in their own temple with their own money. And it simply couldn't go on. But what this story says, you notice, is that there wasn't going to be another one after the son to keep on giving them more chances. They weren't able to say of the son, well, we'll kill him, and then the master who's a long way off says, well, okay, I'll send another servant, or I'll send another one of my sons, or I'll send an army. Actually, he just says, that's it. That's the end. That was their chance. Why? Because they knew that the son represented his father. They knew that he had the authority to say what he said. They couldn't wriggle out of it. They couldn't say, well, maybe you've got it wrong. Maybe you're only pocketing the money for yourself. He had the right to the money himself. They couldn't deny it. Jesus comes to us not as simply a prophet, a teacher, a writer, a wise man, a good man, a miracle worker, a leader, an icon, Jesus comes as the Son of God with the full authority of God. And he says to us, follow me. And I look at bits of my life and say, well, yeah, you can have that bit. You can have that bit. This fruit of the vine, this... this This fruit from the life that you've given me, well, no, I don't recognize your authority over that. This bit of me that I'm going to hold on to, no, you can't have that. That would be too painful or too embarrassing or too long-winded or too much hard work or I think it would make life too dull or or I'd have to give this up or, or I don't know what they'd think of me. And Jesus says, follow me. It's one thing to say that this is the reason Jesus was crucified, because he challenged the authority of the religious and political authorities. And that's true as far as it goes. But it is that personal challenge that we have to hear on the way to Easter. How much of my life do I hold back? How much of who I am do I say to Jesus, I don't recognize your authority to ask me to give you that? But there's a second challenge, and maybe it's 
Actually, no. Actually, on that first challenge, this is something I was thinking about this morning. I was trying to think, well, why is it that I struggle? Why is it that there are parts of my life where I, I don't want to say yes to him? I think, fundamentally, I don't always believe that Jesus has my best interests at heart. Or if I do, that he doesn't really know me quite well enough. Or he doesn't really get what it's like to live this life in this place at this time with this body and this personality. And, and, and he just doesn't get it. Now, I know how absurd that sounds. As I'm saying it, it is absurd. But I also know how it feels. If Jesus says to me, I want you to follow me, and in this part of your life, I want you to stop doing that which you've enjoyed doing or stop um, having that which you like having or stop being in that place which you like being, and I say to him, no, you don't get it. I really like that. And to give that up, to say no to that, somehow I'm going to be less of a person or have less of a good life. I just don't believe that he really wants the best for me. Here's the other challenge. And it's the challenge that brings us back to the state that we've got into when it comes to religious institutions. And dare I say it, to preachers. Because there's a very, very short step, so big, between a preacher standing here or a religious leader standing here or somebody you read standing there and saying, Jesus has authority over this part of life. And about that far beyond that saying, that means I have authority over this part of your life. It's a tiny gap. But fundamentally, that's what had happened with the the Jewish authorities. They believed that the Ten Commandments, for example, were absolutely written in stone because they were meant to last forever and because they were meant to be from God. But what they then took from that authority was personal authority to then pile on another 400 and something laws and a great sack on people's backs. Because they said they wanted, they said they had a good reason for it. I mean, to be fair, they said it's we want to, this was the phrase they used, hedge around the law. They said, here's the law, we're so keen for you not to break God's law, we're going to give you a whole load of other laws that keep you well away for your own good. And again, that wouldn't have been a problem if there had been the ability to say, but these are our suggestions, this is how we read it, God is the one who has authority. And there's the gap. You, you hear me say every single time I preach, I hope I've never done it otherwise, I always say, grab a Bible. And whether you do or not, I hope what you hear is, if you take anything of what I say on any given week or any preacher that stands here, I don't want you believing that I think you should take anything seriously that I say because it's me that's saying it. You might, if you've heard things that I've said before that have been useful, that might mean that you listen and, and take note. But in terms of authority, if I have any authority, it is only where I am speaking words that Jesus would speak. It is only delegated, stood upon, um, from the authority of Jesus. And it's no different from the authority that you have as you tell others about your faith, as you pass on the words of Jesus, because it's not to do with us. It's to do with him. And so I really hope and pray that when you're listening to me preach or anybody else, you're sitting there and you're looking at what it is we're trying to say. You're looking at the Bible, which speaks 
authoritatively of the one who is the author of all things. That's where the word authority comes from, the Latin word that's from author. And what it says is the only person with the authority to speak um, with that level of certainty and with that level of command about, about things is the author of all things. Uh, if you've ever been handed a picture by a one-year-old, you'll know that, that moment where you think, I don't know what this is. And you know that after you've said, that's beautiful, really beautiful, well done, the next thing you have to do is to try and find a way of asking, well, it's really lovely. Well, so what, what is, what's this bit? At which point the child either makes it up on the spot, and you know perfectly well they're making it up, but that's fine, they're the author, they're allowed to, or they tell you that that's a 12-legged spider, and, and, and this, is, this is a princess over here with a dragon, and there's sunshine over here, and you're thinking, okay, you're the author, you're the, you're the designer, you're the creator, you get to say what it is. Nobody else can. It doesn't matter that I say it doesn't look like that. That's what it was meant to be. The creator, the author of all things, is the one who is able to say to us, your life is for this. That's not for me to say. I can say what I believe God's word says. I can say what I believe God's purpose for us is. You're allowed to say, Richard, I disagree with you. I don't think that is what the Bible says. I don't think that is what God's word is for us. That's a conversation we're allowed to have. The authority isn't in the me or my office. The authority comes from God's word and from Jesus himself. That's why us reading our Bibles for ourselves, that's why us really thinking through our own faith is so important. Because it's not about a person or a church. It's about Jesus himself, the author and perfecter of all things. We want to hear what he has to say. And I pray, I really pray, I pray every Sunday, against, in my, as far as I'm concerned, against all the odds, that there will be things that I say that will come across with the authority of Jesus because they're the things Jesus wants to say today. But I also know there's plenty of stuff I say that you need to just never think of again. And that should be true of everything you listen to and everything you read because we want to come back to the authority of Jesus. I've said far enough, far, far too much. Two challenges. Firstly, am I like the tenants in the vineyard with some of the fruit of this life? Do I say to God, I don't think you've the right to have authority over this part of my life? And if so, why is it? Why do I do that? And secondly, when I come to learn about my faith, when I come to, to think, well, what am I doing with my life? How do I shape my life? What's right and what's wrong? Am I finding my authority in the right place? Am I studying for myself? Am I trying with all my heart to hear what God is saying through Scripture, through preachers and teachers, sure, but in my own study? Am I going to allow God to speak to me and to direct my life? We're going to pause for a moment um, just in quiet, and it may be that in that quietness you want to bring to God some area of your life that you know that you struggle to hand back to him, that you struggle to let the author of all things have authority over. And then as we come to communion, we're going to be remembering Jesus' death that showed once and for all in his death and resurrection his rightful authority, even over sin and death. 
And as we come for communion, we be with empty and open hands. We come and give him our lives and we say, author and perfecter of all things, you have the authority to have me follow you. So let's be still and we'll pray.